Revelation chapter 17. Now, let me, let me just preface this. Uh, we started last week in Revelation 17. Kind of a foundational study of the, of, of, of the chapter, but we really, it was really of the first few verses. And uh, tonight, uh, the, this is going to be the foundation for that foundation. We're going to be here for a while. Uh, it's not going to be repetitive, so let me just say to you that last week when we began our study in Revelation 17, and we were dealing then with this new character that we meet, but it's not, she's not new, uh, spiritually speaking, because she represents something that's been around a long time. But we're going to be, well, we, we met this person called the Great Harlot. Mystery Babylon is what she's called. Mystery Babylon the Great. The mother of harlots and of all abominations. Now that's, that's a pretty heavy title to carry around. But uh, it is something that God is going to deal with. And this is the reason why it is where it is as far as in the scriptures. In other words, in chapter 17, we have just concluded the study of all of the judgments that are going to come upon the earth during the time of the tribulation period from the great, from the beginning of the tribulation period through seven years. Halfway through begins what is called the great tribulation period, which is the the more intense of the judgments. So judgments will progressively get stronger as uh, the people become more and more uh, antagonistic toward God and antagonistic toward Christ and the things of God. So we mentioned that what we're going to be studying as far as the destruction of Babylon, not just spiritual Babylon, but certainly religious Babylon and commercial Babylon, which we should also call political Babylon. And I'm going to make that uh, addendum, you know, addendum to this whole thing, is that the idea that it's really religious and political. Commercial fits itself into the political Babylon. But it is, it is something that has affected really the whole world, religiously as well as politically. And these are the things that God is going to judge in a great uh, and mighty way. Uh, we tied in this great harlot into the issue of, of spiritual harlotry. In other words, going after something else or, or dis- in essence, a harlot uh, deceives to pull someone away from their spouse, as it were. And Israel is, was, was, is to be um, connected to her spouse, which is God. And Jesus, of course, the bridegroom and the church is the bride. But all down through the ages has been this deception to pull us away from God. And, and enter into spiritual adultery, as it were. And also, uh, you know, of course, a lot of other things happen. There's real adultery and all these other things that are connected to it. But uh, the whole idea is that what began in the garden, in the Garden of Eden, when sin entered into the world through the serpent who is Satan, that's exactly where God's going to end it. The point we were making is that there is a Babylon that is real. A Babylon that is not just spiritual in essence. And what has been giving us those clues has been, in the past few weeks, our studies of the mention of the Euphrates River and the importance of all of the nations that surround the nation of Israel. All of these things are real today. All of these things are seeing all kinds of activities take place. So we're, we're not just dealing with a spiritual 
allegorical or metaphoric Babylon, though we have to remember that God even called Jerusalem and the children of Israel at times Babylon because they had fallen into that deception and began to seek other gods. So Babylon has to do with getting man away from the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God that uh, really is the, uh, the one who has sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Get everything away from that. And, that, and that's going to be the Babylon that God is going to destroy. But there is a real Babylon. In fact, we could even name it in modern history as Iraq. I-R-A-Q, Iraq. Some of you have been to Iraq, I know, because you served in, in the military over there. And, uh, and so you know where this place is. There was a city that Saddam Hussein was wanting to build up to his glory and, and to connect him to Nebuchadnezzar of old. And that was the city of Babylon. And, and so, you know, there's, there's a lot we can say about that. We're going to say a lot more in the next few weeks. We're not going to spend that many weeks, a few, but not that many weeks, because once we establish these foundations, then we can move on and pretty much go verse by verse through the chapters 17 and 18. Once we establish all of this, then we go toward the uh, finality of our study in the book of Revelation. So what I want to do tonight is read through the whole chapter. I want you to see the whole picture. Then we're going to fill in the gaps as we go along. Oh, by the way, I didn't tell you. I can see you all now. I got new glasses. So I, I see you now. <laughs> they finally called me yesterday. It's a little late, but you know, that's okay. And I tell you, nothing hurt. My head doesn't hurt anymore. I don't even know who y'all are. <laughs> All right. Revelation chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now remember, the angel is speaking to the apostle John, who wrote the, out the, the book of Revelation. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Fornication, of course, is certainly, you know, in, in, in regular parlance, you know, we're talking about, you know, sexual uh, uh, issues here, but this is tying them into the spiritual issues. So, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication. So, with whom? Uh, the great harlot, that's who's mentioned there in verse 1. Uh, and then in verse 3 it says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. We talked a little bit about the wilderness and, and that being, of course, the deadness and the dryness and, uh, of the land itself as, as we will see connections more and more as we go. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, someone we've met before. Uh, the beast, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not. Now this is going to be, sound a little confusing. But just hold on to this and just listen. The beast that you saw was and is not. The beast that you saw was and is not, meaning no longer, 
or you can even say dead, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition or to complete lostness. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. (laughs) Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Some call that seven mountains or seven hills. Mountains really is the key here to remember that mountains represent kingdoms. There are also five, uh, I'm sorry, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. And the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is of the seven and is going to perdition. Don't worry about it. We'll get back to it in just a bit. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb. Now we know who the lamb is. Jesus. That's right. And the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. Then He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So that, again, was, was uh, from last week. We tied that into uh, back to verse uh, 5 and 6. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Wow. All right, don't be, don't be too confused. My desire tonight, as I said earlier, is to build on the foundational study that we began with last time concerning Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Now, chapters that are the reason, chapter 17 and 18 are the reason many churches refuse to study the book of Revelation. I think you're going to see that as we go along. But there is no denying after reading through this whole chapter as we just did. There is no denying that this particular chapter contains quite a bit of symbolism. But this symbolism is not intended to negate the literals that they intend to represent. So all of the symbolism that's in here represents something that is literal. That is the point. In other words, all these things will find their fulfillment in the last days. All of these things will find their fulfillment at the end of time. And this is a good time to remember that the Bible, the Word of God, is history that really points to Jesus Christ. That's why we can say history is His story. Because all of history, whether some people want to believe it or not, all of history still comes back to Jesus Christ. I mean, we, we, we learned that even in our young school days where we had B.C. and A.D. Now, they don't do B.C. and A.D. They do B.C.E. and A.C.E., you know. B.C.E. is, is uh, well, you all remember B.C. before Christ. And A.D. means Anno Domine, uh, the year of the Lord and beyond. But... BCE is uh, before the common era, is what they call it now. You know, because we can't be, you know, religious as it were. Before the common era, and then AC, of course, after the common era. So there's, there's a common era. Where is it? Well, the common era still is where Christ was born, when he was born. So history points to his story from one end of history to the other. 
So it is from beginning to end the witness and the testimony of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so as we deal with the events that have been given to us in the Word of God, dealing with prophetic themes and the day of the Lord and end times. Now remember the day of the Lord is the seven year period. And then the end times is really the end of those seven years which we've been studying recently. But whatever research we do when dealing with prophetic themes, whatever research we do and whatever sources that we find or whatever traditional teachings that were the basis for what is considered prophetically profitable, we must take it all to the Word of God. We must take it all to the Word of God. Uh, The things that we will deal with this evening hinge on this one question. The traditions of men are the Word of God. Which one is it going to be? Are we going to follow the traditions of men or are we going to follow the Word of God? I hope that we follow the Word of God. So consider, if you will, the words of Jesus in speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees back in Matthew 15. And I want to give you a little bit of of the story here. So I I, I want to start with what it says here in verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? Now, isn't it interesting that they didn't really come to Jesus and say, why, why, isn't it, why, why, why don't your disciples follow the Word of God? The fact is, they were following the Word of God, but the scribes and the Pharisees were more concerned with the traditions of the elders. So, why do, you, why do your disciples transgress the, tra- the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and he said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God, notice, because of your tradition? And then he explains it this way, for God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is a gift uh, to God, then he need not honor his father or mother. Ha! Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. So they built tradition out of the Word of God, but sometimes these traditions weren't in line with the Word of God. You, you can understand that, right? So they, they kind of made laws to go with their laws. They kind of made rules, you know, to go along with things, to kind of benefit them. This, this was something that would have benefited them. But then if you go to Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8, Jesus answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? So, by the way, you go back and you read the Matthew passage. He calls them hypocrites later. He says, as it is written, this people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Quoting from the book of Isaiah. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So they're teaching certain doctrines as commandments of men and not just the word of God itself. Which one is more important? The word of God. If you go down in the same chapter to verse, uh, well, we'll go to the next verse. Verse 8, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. So that was what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. They were laying aside the word of God and following traditions. The washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things that you do. By the way, they still do it. In verse 13 of the same chapter, it says, Making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. Now... Why do I bring this up? Because the tradition for some churches today, the tradition for some churches not to study the book of Revelation stems from their rather liberal eschatology. Eschatology just means end times teaching. So they have a very liberal eschatology that views biblical prophecy as either fully or completely allegorical and metaphoric which means that most of the symbols stand for spiritual fulfillments and no literal fulfillments. That's a tradition. That's that's not what the Scriptures teach, but that's what they teach because they don't want to look at the literal part of it. I'll tell you why in a moment. There are traditions that teach most or all of biblical prophecy has already been fulfilled in history. This is called preterism. And so the preterist teaching. Of, of saying that, you know, all of the prophecies that people are, you know, teaching as, as, as uh, future is not. It's already been fulfilled. 
They, they thought it was fulfilled in A.D. 70 when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. With that thought in mind, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the Jews are all scattered. And they say, you see, now that builds for another theology, which is called replacement theology. And I'll talk about that in just a brief moment. Because with that thought of preterism, all of these things have been fulfilled. There is therefore no necessity for a true Israel to be in the land. So again, this includes that addition of something called replacement theology, which is replacing Israel with the church to receive God's blessings. Now, what, what seems to be incomplete with that kind of theological thinking is that they, they, they want to say that the church receives all the blessings of God and Israel no longer exists. Uh, but, but I often ask the question, well, don't you think that if we're going to inherit the blessings of God, we're also going to inherit the judgments? Because God is, you know, God is not mocked. I mean, so you, you don't want the, ble- you don't want the, mo- you, you don't want the judgment, but you'll take the blessings. If, if something was for Israel, you better take everything, right? That's the problem with replacement theology. But that's, that's the extremes. What about even within Bible believing churches today? Even in solid premillennial pre-tribulational, uh, dispensational, literal teaching of Bible prophecy as we believe and we do, even then certain traditions have set in in regards to some of the symbolism. For example, the immediate reference to Rome as being the city on seven hills because many Bible pro- prophecy teachers will go immediately to Rome and say, well, well that passage of the seven mountains... That has to be the seven hills, and Rome is built on seven hills. Well, so are about seven or eight other cities in the world. They're called, you know, city of the seven hills. So which one is it? Athens, Texas? Because I think that's one of them, and a few others. But the, the immediate reference to Rome as being the city on seven hills and immediately making the Roman Catholic Church the great harlot, because a lot of people believe that, which is not to say that some of their religious practices are not rooted in Babylonian religious system, which we're going to realize and learn that they, they are. Or that commercial or political Babylon is rooted in Europe or in the European Union. Or that the Antichrist is some fair-haired, effeminate European. All of these are just based on what? They'll give you a a, a verse of Scripture, but that verse of Scripture will usually be out of context to the whole text. And we're not going to do that. I hope that we can dig a lot deeper than these traditions and dig deeper into the Word of God and see the consistency of the Word of God about this chapter. But it is tragic that many will not study these particular chapters in Revelation because of the deep infiltrations of the world's religious systems that have affected many a church and a denomination uh, that have been engineered by Satan himself. You know, we, we've talked a lot about, uh, about apostate churches or churches that are going off away from the Word of God. These are, these are things that, are, that should cause us to really pay attention to what people are teaching, to what is being given out as, as quote-unquote, God's Word. And I'll, I'll begin to tell you right now that sometimes the, the worst thing about it all is when, when certain teachers rely on, on very modern translations that are not translations but paraphrases and that do not give you the full sense of what the Word of God says. It brings only confusion. So we, we stay as close to the King James uh, uh, translation itself, along with the New King James is what we use. But you know, I, but we have to study. We have to look at each verse from every from every text. There's some good translations out there. There are some good translations, but many of the ones today are are based on on thought translation rather than word for word translation. And we need to go much better with word for word. So, the fact is, as we have already pointed out, 
this religious system has been alive since the very beginning. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And I talked about that last week. And the connection the Garden of Eden has with the Euphrates River and the Euphrates River and the connection that the Euphrates River has with the location of Babylon. And today, modern Turkey, which I mentioned last week, which we'll get to next week. There were a couple of things that shook the Apostle John when this prophecy was presented to him by one of the angels holding, you know, those empty bowls of God's wrath that had been emptied out. Go back, if you will, to verses 6 and 7 now of our text. Revelation 17, verse 6. I saw the woman, John says, drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. In other words, he was completely and totally shocked. Now this is one place where we have to realize that, uh, uh, I think even in the King James, the word that is used there for amazement is, uh, in the the modern English is, is, is not correct, but we'll go with this for now. Marvel with great amazement. But the angel said to me, why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. By the way, that word I was saying was admiration. I wondered with great admiration, he says. I, I marveled with great admiration. Not admiration as we understand admiration. The word that was used back in those days just really meant shock and amazement. But first and foremost, the reason why I mention that there were a couple of things that shook the Apostle John about this was that John understood the symbolism. John understood the symbolism. And he was shocked and troubled by the fact that the great harlot turns and devours the believers. That, he is resp- that she is responsible. She's responsible for the martyrs of the early church. Responsible for all the faithful of the children of Israel who were faithful to God. Responsible for all of those who, lost, who, w- who will lose their lives. He's looking ahead also. Who would lose their lives as those who come to faith in Christ during the time of the tribulation, what we call tribulation saints. He's seeing all of this and seeing how the great harlot is the responsible one for all of these deaths. As Satan attempted to do from the very beginning, By deceiving Adam and Eve, by deceiving the man and the woman, in particular the woman and the man not responding at all in the garden, when he knew what God had taught, when he should have rebuked it all, instead it brought death to man. What was it that God said? Do not eat of the tree of the... Do not eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day that you eat of that tree, you will surely die. What he said was, and what he meant was, you will surely die spiritually immediately, you will eventually die physically. And that's exactly what has happened to man. Man was not created to die, but to be in fellowship with God. In obedience and in love with God forever. But secondly, John, in hearing the whole prophecy now, he realizes that the power described in the great harlot was enthroned then and now. In other words, it was enthroned in John's now. The great harlot was active then, And it is active now. In his time and in our time. Now, nearly every author of the Holy Scriptures, nearly every author in the the Bible has warned about 
what is mentioned in Revelation 17. Not all, but nearly all of them. And that it is an ancient and massive and dangerous problem. I want to list just a few of them for continuity. Turn, if you will, I'm going to give you a list of six passages. Turn, first of all, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verses 24 through 26. Again, I, I added a few verses here because of, I want the, the sense to be correct and right and the context to be right. 2 Corinthians 11, 24 John, uh, Paul, I should say, is talking about himself. He's giving his testimony about the things that he has gone through. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. By the way, Paul was a Jew. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. By the way, Paul was not alone. How many people since the beginning of the church have suffered for the sake of Christ? But Paul is making a statement here. We're not going to go deal with the whole point, but there's something that he says. Okay, so he says, A night and a day I've been in the, in the deep. Now, here, uh, let's go, almost there. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea. Now notice the last phrase in verse 26. In perils among false brethren. In perils among false brethren. People who call themselves believers and brothers in Christ, but they were false. Now he puts that in a whole list of all kinds of other persecutions that he's gone through. Now keep that in mind. And then now turn to 2 John. 2 John is just a few books right before the book of Revelation. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, we're going to 2 John. It's only one chapter, so I've put it in terms of one chapter, a one chapter book. 2 John 4, Paul sa- uh, John says, not Paul, John, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, and he's actually speaking to, this is possibly a lady who opened her home to 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 a church. Others believe that it's the church itself. I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but for that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. Notice the next verse. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now notice, for many deceivers, underline deceivers, have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. There are those who deceive people today. There's some people who go to your door every weekend, knock on your door, and they got a Bible in their hand. And they're saying, you know, we, we can tell you what this Bible means. But they do not believe that Jesus actually came in the flesh. Now, the, the, the fact that he came in the flesh... And, and he's saying that they, they don't believe that he came in the flesh. It has to do with him coming in the flesh to do what he did for the sins of the world. In that, they do not see Jesus as the Savior of the world. They do not see him as God in the flesh. So that's a deception and an antichrist. And John talks a lot about the Antichrist spirit, and we'll see that in just a moment in another book. Now move a little bit to your left and go to Second Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2. Again, establishing here a foundation of understanding 
where we're going with all of this. Second Peter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, But there were also false prophets among the people. Notice, underline false prophets. Among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. So what have we heard? False prophets, false teachers, deception, false brethren who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. It's not just an issue that we can debate or not debate. It's destructive heresies. Things that are treated as truth, but they're not. They're heretical and they are destructive. Even denying the Lord who bought them. Denying the Lord who bought them means denying the one who died on the cross for us. Denying what he did on the cross. Denying what it meant to die on the cross for us. And bring on themselves with destruction. Keep that in mind. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom? Notice this. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. It's going to come. God hasn't forgotten those who have led people astray from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If there was ever a time that you were led astray and you've been brought back, thank God for that, but pray for the one who led you astray. Because if they don't turn their lives back to the Lord, they've got sudden, or they've got judgment coming because their destruction doesn't sleep. Now go to 1 John. I know I'm jumping around. Go back to your right. 1 John. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. And John gets deep about this because you know a lot of times when people speak, they're not just speaking from their wisdom or not. There's a spirit involved. For us, we should speak according to the Holy Spirit that is supposed to be within us, that is in line with the Word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God. And the greatest way to test the spirits is to test it with the Word of God. Because many false prophets, again, false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this you know the Spirit of God. So here here he says, by this is how you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in the world. See, John already knew that the spirit of Antichrist was in the world when given the revelation of Jesus. But false prophets... Telling us that Jesus didn't come to die in the flesh for the sins of man. But we know he did. Now, Jesus himself in Matthew 24 verse 10 says, And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. He's speaking of the future, isn't he? He's speaking of now. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Later on in verses 24 and 25, he says, For false Christs and false prophets. So add now another thing to the list. Not just false brethren, false teachers, false prophets, but now there are false Christs. And false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Now, I've added the next verse for this reason. See, I have told you beforehand. I have already told you about these things.
In other words, it's nothing new. I've pointed it out to you. John heard those words as a disciple of Jesus. You see, I have told you beforehand. Are people listening to what God is saying? Are we listening right now to what God has been telling you? Not just about this, but about our own very lives being lived out for the sake of Jesus Christ. Our very own lives being lived out for the sake of the kingdom of God. Everything that we say and do, does it line up with the word of God? So that what we do gives honor and glory to the Lord and not to ourselves or to anybody else. Something else I I need to share with you before we go on. It's Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Those of you may remember that it is in Acts chapter 20 that the Apostle Paul is about to depart from the area of Ephesus and he meets with with the with the elders of of the church of Ephesus in a place called Miletus where he'll be boarding a a ship to take him on his way to Jerusalem. Because that's what he believes God wants him to do. And even after many people have told him not to do it, he still believes this is what God wants him to do. So he gathers these elders together. And he shares with him his heart. I'm not going to go through the whole passage, but I do want to go through this little section. It begins in verse 27. Because a lot of people say, well, you know, when Paul calls a a pastor's meeting or a pastor's conference or an elder's meeting and all, you know, what what is he going to tell them? Is he going to tell them, you know, how, how they can best be better pastors or elders or teachers? You know, go through this method. I'll teach you how to give three points and a prayer at the end and all this kind of stuff. Or is he more concerned about this? He says, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I have not held back, in other words, from teaching you all of God's word. And therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. You know, a lot of times people don't realize this, but in this verse we see a very strong connection to the deity of Jesus Christ. A very strong statement about the deity of Christ. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Uh, Excuse me, but does anybody see the name of Jesus? Do you see it? Do you see the name? You don't see it up here. Do you see it? You don't see it. You don't see it. But it's there. He's God. He's God. Don't let anybody tell you there are no passages in Scripture where Jesus is either he or, or the apostles claim him to be deity. It's all over the place. You just got to dig and find it. Well, here it is, just out in the open. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. That's Jesus. Okay. That's our theological lesson for the day. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, draw away the disciples, or to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. To him the church, being that it was God's church, it was God's people. And he was given that challenge and that charge. To be concerned for the churches. You check and watch everything and protect the the sheep that belong to God. So now, brethren, I commend you. And this is one of the most beautiful... I, I didn't realize this until just going over it and over it, how beautiful this passage is. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace. Just that phrase alone, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those 
who are sanctified or set apart for Christ. Listen, if Paul were to be in this place today and would have come and said, look, I, I need to come, I could say a lot of stuff. I just need to warn you about the things that are going to happen. But I'm going to depart soon. So I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. What a beautiful thing he says. To say the same degree I say to you, I commend you each and every week because I don't know that between now and this weekend the Lord calls any of us home. Or he comes and takes us home. But until that day, I want you to know I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Not to anything else, but to, the, to God and to the word of his grace. Because that is what's going to build you up. So this was all that Paul could do. After declaring the whole counsel of God, commending them to God in the word of His grace. And folks, if a church fails to do this, then it is not a church of Jesus Christ. I will be bold in telling you that right now. If a church fails to do this in commending you to God and to the word of His grace, then it is not a church of Jesus Christ. If it only commends you to a doctrinal lesson plan or to a prayer book or any such thing other than God's Word and God's care in Christ through the power of His Holy Spirit, it is powerless and it is useless. I mean, who talks about these things today? I, I, I get together with a lot of pastors from time to time, not all at one time, but, you know, and they're good brothers in Christ. And at times we'll sit and talk about what we're teaching. And sure enough, when I get asked, you know, what do you teach? Well, I'm teaching Genesis and Revelation. I got the bookends of the whole Bible. (laughs) Revelation? It's not so bad you were, you know, teaching through Genesis for four years. But they say, Revelation? Oh, I don't, I don't touch that book. I say, why not? I know you've read it. Yeah, I've read it. That's why I don't want to... I said, do you not want the challenge? Or do you not want the blessing? I mean, we cannot be ashamed. We cannot be afraid or intimidated by the very book that tells us that it is the unveiling and revelation or revealing of Jesus Christ our Lord. Have ministers forgotten the blessing of Revelation 1 verse 3? Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. There's a blessing there. And by the way, toward the end of the book, there's another blessing. It says, Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I certainly would want the blessing. And I'm not trying to want the whole blessing just for me, but I want you to have the blessing too. All right, now, before we begin to unlock the symbolism of this chapter in its entirety, which we'll do for the next five hours, well, I'm just kidding. I want to establish one more foundation in our study of chapter 17. There have been a few, but very few Bible prophecy teachers that have clearly seen that this chapter is not pointing to Rome as either the great harlot or the seven heads of the beast. And Rome is not the city on seven hills. I want to really stress that next week as we deal with all of the heads and, you know, this beast. We're going to talk about that. But Joseph A. Seiss wrote a three-volume work on Revelation entitled The Apocalypse. That work was published in 1865, and it is well worth getting a copy today because it is still in print. Isn't that interesting? A book from 1865 that is still in print today. And, uh, and it's well worth the read. But at the onset of the chapter in his book on uh, 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 Revelation 17, Seiss established a context-worthy correlation and contrast of the woman in chapter 17 with the woman in chapter 12. Now, you all remember the woman in chapter 12? The woman who was clothed with the sun and had the moon under her feet 
and, she, and, and, and the stars above her head. You know who that is, don't you? It's Israel. And we prove that through the, through the scriptures. Because Israel would give birth to a man-child, Jesus. All right, so you remember that. Okay. So there's this contrast now that we do need to see because this is going to provide the context for our understanding why this great harlot and the, and the beast and the Antichrist and all of these things are, are, are not dealing with something that all of a sudden comes out to be Rome, even though there is a little connection. I'm not going to say there isn't, but, I, but, but, but we have to stay firm on, on, on the contrast, or I'm sorry, the, firm on the, uh, on the correlation of all of these things. On the consistency is the word I was looking for. The consistency that needs to be used in studying uh, Revelation. Revelation 12, verse 1 says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven. Okay, Because there's, there's a contrast that we have to see. A contrast between this woman in chapter 12 and the woman in chapter 17. In chapter 12, a woman is described, right? Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. In chapter 17, the other woman is described. So he carried me away, verse 3 of our text. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Where's the other woman from? Heaven. Saw a great sign in heaven. But now, John says, I'm being carried away into the wilderness by the spirit. What a contrast. Heaven in the wilderness. All right. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. Now, some contrast and comparison. Both of these women are mothers. Both of these women are mothers. The first woman brought forth a son. Revelation 12, verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Who, who is that? Jesus, we saw that in Psalm 2. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. The second woman, as we've already seen, is the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Verse 5. Both of these women are very well dressed, right? They're very well dressed. The first is clothed with the sun. In other words, her apparel is light from heaven. The second is clothed in purple and scarlet, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. All of her ornaments, notice the contrast, all of her ornaments are from the things of the earth and the sea. Both women are very influential in their position. The first woman has the moon, what some would consider as the empress of night, the powers of darkness, under her feet. The second has rule or kingdom upon the kings of the earth. They're both very influential. But they are both also sufferers. Both of them suffer. Against the first is the dragon who stands watch to devour her child. How often has the devil tried to defeat Jesus? It goes back even in the line of Jesus back in the days of the kings. And even before that, you just go all the way back to the garden, after the garden, Cain and Abel. So, he persecutes her, pursues her, drives her into the wilderness, sends out a river to overwhelm her, and is at war with all her seed. What is the seed of the woman? Israel. Just think of the life of Israel today. Against the second woman, there are ten kings who ultimately hate her and make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh, as we've already read, and burn her with fire while the Lord God, in His strength, judges her with plague, death, and destruction. Both women are highly visible and noticeable, at least in the text, and fill a large place in the history of the world, both women. And there is no doubt that they are counterparts. Let's face it, one, one of the most imp, 
impacting nations in the world today is a little strip of land in the Middle East, no larger than the state of New Jersey. And it has such an impact on this whole world, the state of Israel. So now think about its counterpart and how great is that counterpart. Not only that surrounds it physically and geographically, but also spiritually and politically throughout all the world. Not many nations today are friends with Israel. One one of them of these women is pure, the other is filthy. The first is hated by the powers on earth, the second is loved and flattered and caressed by those powers. One is heavenly, the other is from the wilderness. One produces listen to this, one produces masculine nobility. She gives birth to a male child. Very clear in the scripture. The other produces an effeminate impurity. The other produces an effeminate impurity which brings down the fierceness of God's wrath. One is clearly symbolic, significantly symbolic of Israel. The other is clearly labeled as mystery, Babylon the Great. And I have to mention that this is pretty much where Sice and others of his time miss the allegory. Because to them the first woman at least from Sice's point of view. Others look at the first woman as, as other things, but he kind of leads the way with other people considering the, that the first woman, which is Israel, clearly in the scripture, is actually what he calls the universal church. In other words, the church has always been around. But you see, the fault in that thinking is, first of all, the church did not give birth to Jesus. Israel did. The reason why they have to go to that extreme, which has become somewhat traditional in some people's eyes, is, is that there wasn't an Israel. There was a land that was completely desolate. Jews were scattered all over the world, yes. But there was no Israel. Very few people actually had a vision of Zionism to believe that Zion would once again rise the way the Bible teaches that it would. Very few did. But praise God for those who stuck to that. Because in 1948, Israel was declared a nation again. And that because of the dry bones of Ezekiel 37. That makes it very clear to us that the Holocaust was the catalyst to give birth to the nation of Israel. No other way. The Jews would have been content to live throughout all the world. Who wanted to live in a place where it was dry and ugly and and, and desolate? There were a few that did because they read the prophecies and they believed that Israel would rise again. And the one passage of scripture that the early Zionists of the late 1900s, uh, the late 19th century, believed was Ezekiel 37 the chapter dealing with the dry bones being raised up and given life so as Antichrist corresponds to Jesus as rival and antagonist of Christ so Babylon the Great corresponds to the woman that bears the child as her rival and antagonist And as we shall see more clearly next time, and we saw a little bit of it last time when we talked about Nimrod and Babel and Babylon, the very birthplace of the Babylonian religious system, the system of of idolatry, the system of, of, of spiritual harlotry and spiritual adultery and spiritual fornication, all of those things to lead people away from God. This rival relates to the great enemy of Israel historically. 
And the great enemy of Israel today is Islam. And many, and the many, I should say, that have adopted the Babylonian religious system. I want to close with one verse from Revelation 12, verse 6 that deals with a woman. Because it tells us there in Revelation 12, verse 6, it says, And the woman fled into the wilderness. Notice where? Into the wilderness. And this speaking actually, literally, where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And this prophecy refers to that place called Petra. We talked about it in Revelation 12 when we studied it. But that's where they will go to hide during this great time of, of persecution against Israel. So who persecutes them in that area? Who perse- who, who, who shoots into Israel? Sometimes on a weekly basis. Hamas, Hezbollah. What is their foundation? They call it militant Islam. Folks, I'll just say it's Islam. And, and you know, that's why we need to pray for people who are Islamic or Muslim because a lot of times they don't really know these things. They're like a lot of people that go to church and don't really know about Jesus. They just know, well, they don't know a lot about Jesus, but they just know what they know. Let's not sit in here and, and just know what we know. Let's know what the Scripture says. That's the whole idea of taking this whole route to, to establish this foundation so that next week we can really get moving now. Okay? Two foundations. Okay, that's enough. We've got to go on. All right, so we're going to talk about Rome next week and what it isn't and Babylon and what it is. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you.